So during the BC years, that'd be before children, um, or I guess during children for part of it, Nicole and I, uh, we, we spent we spent about four, almost five years uh, ministering in the town of Glenwood Springs, Colorado. Um, it's over in western Colorado near Utah. And, uh, so, and I'm from Denver, so frequently we would take these trips to Denver to see our family or do shopping or just enjoy some downtime. And it's not a long trip per se. It's about three or four hours. Um, and, and it travels along Interstate 70, which is a major freeway. Um, it runs almost the length of the entire continent. But uh, to get to Denver, you've got to realize that you're crossing the Continental Divide. You're going through the Rocky Mountains the entire way. Um, and, and not to mention you're driving through canyons and other areas that can be quite difficult to navigate. You take that and you add to the fact that you're doing it with about a billion people that seem to be trying to get their SUV to achieve low-level flight instead of driving. They're probably all from California. There's anybody from California? Well, we'll talk about it later. Um, but and, and and have the they think that the little like badge on their car that says four wheel drive means that their car can automatically go any speed in any weather and everything will be totally okay. And you have a recipe for a thing called a major delay, right? And, and it, it would happen to us all the time. We would, we would go to take off and go, and we'd be stuck. We would go to come back, and we would be stuck. And I remember one trip back, we were informed that, because one of the big things about this is, is through the mountains, right at the middle, kind of at the halfway point between where we were in Denver, there is a wonder of the modern world known as Eisenhower Tunnel where they have basically, instead of trying to go up over the mountains, they bored almost 3K straight through the mountains, going both directions. So the four-lane highway just goes, you know, they have two different tunnels, the Eisenhower Tunnel and the Johnson Tunnel moving through. And I'll tell you what, boy, if, if those things get backed up, if they have an accident in one of those, or they have an accident anywhere near those, you're just out of luck, right? And so we're coming back from Denver and we find out that the tunnel is closed, and we're backed up 14 miles from the tunnel. And, and when we get there, and I decide that we're going to take a detour instead of sitting in traffic, okay? This is partly because we've got a deadline that we're trying to keep, but probably more because I am still trying to impress my newlywed wife of a couple of years with my knowledge of the geography and the back roads of Colorado. Don't worry, babe, I grew up here. See, the thing about Colorado is that if you, if you can find a valley, we're going to stick a road in it because there are mountains everywhere and little towns scattered all over. And so it's just, if you can find a way to get up over to the next road, you're golden. And, and knowing all these little passes helps you get to all these other roads and get around. So while everyone else starts slowing down at the town of Georgetown, I hit the exit on the highway, and we go barreling up Guanella Pass to about 13,800 feet, cross over the other top, and go down over into the, uh, the other highway, Highway 285. And I'm laughing the whole way at those suckers who are stuck waiting for the tunnel to clear, and we're driving free and clean on this other new highway for about 15 miles, and... You guess it, we hit deadlock traffic there. Evidently, they have decided it is time to pave a 150-mile stretch between the town of Grant that we just came out near and Buena Vista, way down there. 
And so now I'm thinking, I'm like, what are, the wheels in my head are turning faster than the wheels on my car. And I'm going, what are we going to do now? And then I remember, oh, wait, we can hit another back road. It's like just a couple miles up. We can hit another one. It'll kind of cut between like Hoosier, Pat, Hoosier and Little Baldy, and we can run up north of the Cuba Pass. We'll cut into Breckenridge. It'll be great. And so we get there, and we're off into the wilderness again, this time with maybe a little less bravado than the first time. But I think at this point my wife is either asleep or probably just praying for me. Um, we hop back over, we come into Breckenridge, we come over into Frisco where we can hit I-70 again and start heading west, and by this time it's probably been about three hours. And, and this town is roughly our halfway point to get home. So it's been a little while. And, and we're dog-tired, we stop in for some food and just kind of stretch our legs, and I just kind of ask about what's going on with the gas station guy there, and uh, I find out that the tunnel has actually been cleared. And the traffic is flowing freely, and it has been for quite some time. Even worse, I find out that it cleared about 20 minutes after I decided to take that first detour. So while we were cresting Guanella Pass, and I was laughing at all those poor suckers that were supposedly in gridlock, God was chuckling at me, thinking that I knew what was going on, and then also probably honoring the prayers of my wife to give me patience and humility. I would like to say that I have grown more wise in my traveling decisions, but that's something you will have to ask my navigator as to whether that is actually true or not. Detours are a tricky, tricky thing. And so is discernment. And, it's, and, it, and if it's difficult when you're making driving decisions, it is even more difficult when you are navigating life. We get all sorts of things thrown in our way. Thrown into our jobs, thrown into our families, thrown into our relationships, thrown into our goals and our plans, you name it. Sometimes it feels like we've only got a split second while we're traveling down life's highway to determine whether it's better to stay the course or whether it's time to hit the exit ramp. And like my adventure, it seems that things really turn out the way that we plan them to be. No matter what decision we make. And so, how do we determine what choices God wants us to make? This idea of discernment and the Holy Spirit seems to be one of the major themes of the New Testament, of, of seeking the direction of God, of seeking the direction in our choices. And, and we've talked about this a little bit before, but I really see Acts 15 and 16, this second missionary journey of Paul, as one where where discernment is happening all over the place, but it's also really difficult to understand. The journey is not very straightforward, and, and we learn a lot about the posture of a disciple of Jesus in being open to God, especially the God who changes things quickly and the God who is moving and doing something even when we can't figure out what's going on. So this whole adventure starts off seemingly on the wrong foot a little bit before our reading this morning. We started at the beginning of Acts 16, but if you go back to before, when this idea is starting out, Paul and Barnabas, who went on their first missionary journey together, are talking about, you know, we should probably go back and encourage all of those churches. It'd be a good idea. They get to talking about it, they start making their plans, they start getting things ready, and then something happens. 
the whole trip starts to run aground over whether to bring their friend John Mark along. And, and if, you, if you remember the story on their first mission, John Mark jumped ship on it fairly early on. We're not really sure why, but it's pretty obvious from the way that the reaction to it happens is that it's some kind of cop-out. I, I don't know why. But basically, he gets out, and he's like, missionary life is not for me, and he just kind of leaves them midstream. And that, that really kind of chokes Paul a little bit, I think. Um, Barnabas, being the son of encouragement, he wants to give the kid another chance. Okay, it, it probably helps that they're related, too. But Paul wants to jettison the dead weight. Now, if we think that this is a civil disagreement, because I, you look at this, and, and it... We, we tidy up the language and it says things in our, our Bibles like there arose a sharp dispute, you know, or something like that. As though they were sitting over tea and going, I disagree about bringing John Mark along. I really don't think that's such a great idea. Oh, but I think it's a fantastic idea. You know, like, that is not what's going on here. Okay? Let me just be honest with you. The word that is used here to describe disagreement is the same word we get a medical term paroxysm from. And if you don't know what that is, if you're not a doctor, let me explain what that looks like. It's when you have a fever or an infection or something like that, and it spikes so rapidly on you that it literally sends you into convulsions. Now, if you can imagine what that looks like on a medical level, why don't we imagine what that looks like on an argument level? We're not having a discussion about John Mark here. You got two leaders of the church that are probably saying things that they wish that they had never said and doing things that they wish that they had never done. And I love that Luke drops that in there just to remind us that, you know, Paul and Barnabas are not these big guys on pedestals. They are, they're just guys that are trying to follow God. And, I, you know, I imagine those later letters where Paul talks about the dangers of anger and bursts of rage, he is probably remembering this. He's not just talking theoretically. He's talking out of experience. I have heard this passage used time and time again to justify things like church splits or two groups of people going their separate ways when this is a disagreement. And I think Paul would be the first to tell us that this line of thinking is foolish. It is not what this passage is about. It, that is not what this passage is about. It is not, well, if you get in a sharp disagreement, then you have two congregations and it's okay. No, ha huh. That's not what this passage is about at all. Luke is reminding us that these people are not super apostles. They are flawed folks led by a generous spirit of God. And maybe the only lesson that you learn from this really explosive argument that almost derails this trip before it even starts is that God can still do something good and redemptive even out of extreme foolishness. Instead of, one journey going, instead of one journey going out, two go out. Barnabas grabs John Mark, and they head back to Cyprus. Paul grabs Silas, and they start going back over toward his hometowns, down in kind of the southern area of Turkey. And they go, they go their separate ways. It's not 
a good thing. It's not a good detour. It's, it's one that's actually born out of human error, out of human frailty. And yet God is able to do something good with it. And that's, that's, that's the encouragement that you draw from that. But, but already things are not the way that they planned. Paul's now got somebody that's kind of new that, that he doesn't necessarily know. He picks up Timothy, who he kind of knows, but is a guy in training. And they start heading in. And it seems as if Paul and Silas and Timothy can't expand out where they want to go. If you understand the way that the map goes, if, you, if you're listening to, if you know where these towns are, so they, they kind of start down on the southern part of Turkey, and they're trying to kind of get over into where Ephesus is, kind of in the main metropolitan areas out on the coast. That's kind of where the influence really is. And they keep trying to get in, and they go up toward Phrygia, and they're trying to get in over here, so imagine the sea is over here. I'm, I'm, I'm actually painting it backwards. So here's Turkey. Mediterranean Sea is right here. They're coming up here. They're trying to get into Phrygia. They can't. They keep going up. They try to get into Galatia. They can't. They go all the way up and around and over the top, and they're sitting over a trough. They're still trying to get in, but they can't. Why? I don't know. We don't know. They get stopped several times. Has God ever done that to you? You got this great idea. It seems like the Spirit's really talking to you. You start to move forward, and then out of nowhere, you hit a roadblock, and then you hit another one, and then you hit another one, and then you hit another one. It really affects our confidence, doesn't it? You get brought up short, and the question always seems to be, what am I doing wrong here? Did I not hear God correctly? Did I, did I, what's wrong with me that this is not working out? And see, this, this to me is a major fallacy because it's as though if something goes well in our lives, it's all God. If we hit a hiccup, it must be all us. That is not the way that the scripture presents this. In fact, it specifically says it is the Spirit of Jesus that's going, don't go there, don't go there, don't go there. It's the Holy Spirit that's like, nope, 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 nope. And it's just moving them in a completely different direction than they planned. If I think that success is all about God, and that lack of success as I perceive it is all about me, something really kind of funky happens to my theology, especially my theology about life, because, because honestly, that kind of theology is very self-centered. To assume that when something goes wrong, that God either doesn't know what's going on, doesn't have a plan for what's going on, or doesn't have a say in what's going on. And a lot of the pop theology that I hear about naming and claiming or breaking strongholds or any of those kind of ideas when we talk about spiritual power or, 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 or trying to achieve success or what have you seems to fall into that human-centered concept of failure or hardship. We just need to believe more. We just need to push harder into that. We just need more spiritual traction in our prayers. 
And there's no evidence here in Scripture that anybody's doing anything wrong. It's not like the big argument from earlier. In fact, I think the only wrong move would have been if Paul and Silas and Timothy had just kept banging their head, trying to get into Ephesus and not done what they do, which is to stop and to back up and to listen for a while. Paul demonstrates one of the best principles I can think of in regard to discerning what the Holy Spirit is up to, which is he just stops for a little while. He just rests for a little while. He waits. He intentionally steps back to listen. We don't know for how long, but it's a substantial period of time. He's not just throwing around quick prayers for validation while storming off in his chosen direction. That's not what he's doing. And it is in the waiting that the vision comes, but not all at once. Like I said, this, this urging comes all the way around, right? They basically made a big loop and you've got to be asking, how did we get all the way up here anyway? Why are we where we are? It's one thing to trust God when the direction's clear, but it's something entirely different when the trusting seems to turn you through a series of blind alleys, one after the other, after the other, after the other. But then the vision gets revealed fully. And it's quite unexpected, I think, for everyone. A man from Macedonia, okay? This vision of someone that's dressed like they're from the northern part of Greece. A completely different country, a completely different continent, and not only that, the complete opposite direction of where they're trying to go. They're trying to move south, Macedonia, at this point, you know, they're trying, they've moved all the way around. They're trying to move south. Macedonia is north. Completely the opposite direction of the intended destination, saying, come give us the good news about Jesus here. And like I said last week, when we're, when we're faced with decisions big or small, how often are we willing to stop and ask the question, what is the redemptive alternative that might be at work here? I mean, Paul, Paul is not prepared for this at all. The reason he was going to those places is because he's kind of from that area. It's kind of his hometown. He kind of knows how the people act, and he kind of knows how to get in and use his influence there. Like, Greece is a completely different place. It's a completely different culture. It's a completely different direction. He's not ready for that. But he does something else that I think is so critical to, be able, to being able to discern the Holy Spirit. He is willing to be submissive to God reordering his plans in ways that he did not expect. How often do we say that we want discernment in our lives? How often do we say that we want to know the will of God in our lives, but really it's just discernment in terms of God approving or denying our thoughts and plans rather than that deeper discernment that's willing to ask, not, do you like what I have planned or not, but that's willing to ask the other question, what are your desires? 
what are your purposes? What are your plans? How do you see me coming alongside what you're doing? Rather than just, you know, I've got this direction, can you check yes or no as to whether it's good? And if it's no, I'll go back to the drawing board, I'll figure something else out and bring it back to you and go yes or no. They engage in a deeper discernment. They're willing to step back and say, okay, not what are my plans, what are your plans? How do I come alongside what you're doing? How do I come alongside where you're going, where your mission is heading? I mean, more than that, how often are we willing to submit ourselves to the discernment of God when he starts talking about taking us places that are far away from our comfort, far away from our perceived strengths, far away from the places that we might call home? I mean, because that's exactly what this call is for them. They were shooting for the place that they were going to go because those were their kind of people. And God's calling them to a completely different kind of people. The Spirit's not only breaking new ground with them, He is breaking unfamiliar territory, and He is making them come to terms with the fact that their strengths and the areas that they feel most confident, those may not actually be the best way to convey the gospel. Have you ever thought about that? I naturally assume that it's the places where I'm the strongest and where I'm the most capable and where I'm the most naturally able that those are the places where God is going to communicate the gospel. Have you ever considered that maybe it's in the places where you are the weakest and the most unbalanced and the most uncomfortable that those are actually the places where the gospel is communicated the best because people would look at you and say, there is no way that this person would be doing this if they were not motivated by something greater than themselves. I believe we serve a God that can do both. I believe we serve a God that does do both. I believe that we serve a God who uses our strengths and our weaknesses and actually loves it when we are willing to be weak so that he can display his power in us. When we look at both of these stories together, I think there's a real relationship between the two of them. On the one hand, you have a Paul who assumes that he's right, assumes that he knows all, and storms off from a dear friend with Silas in tow. And and God's mercy keeps things on the rails for him. And, And the funny thing is, is that quickly transforms, if I'm getting into the mind of Paul, it transforms him into a deeply confused and conflicted Paul who either gets an explicit word or a deep and growing internal conviction through circumstances that his full speed ahead plans are coming apart. How he envisioned things going, they're not going to be there. And I appreciate this because it's a place I've found myself. It's a place I think we all find ourselves at times. It's a lesson that the church has to learn from generation to generation to generation. And that's why I'm so glad that God inspired Luke not to minimize, not to gloss over his account. Sometimes we are full of impetuous action. We dive into things, we commit, and we plow ahead to accomplish it because darn it, we're right. And thank God that his mercy is still strong enough and big enough to accomplish good even as it reminds us that we often know very, very little in comparison to the God of heaven. It's 
good thing to remember. It's a good thing to be reminded of. I need to be reminded of it. And even more, thank God that when those plans start to unravel or when our confidence starts to follow suit, that's where he invites us to enter into a real discernment of his heart and his purposes rather than just a, I told you so, or if you would just fill in the blank more, then this wouldn't have been happening. See, instead he invites us to stop and he invites us to humbly come alongside him and listen and to be ready for him to wow us with the possibilities of what might be, to be challenged to let him work out of our weaknesses and our stumbling instead of our self-confidence striding. See, I believe that true discernment of the Holy Spirit begins with us making a decision that we value his voice and his vision more than my voice and my vision. His intuition more than my intuition. Not about being frozen or indecisive, not about being unable to move on until we have confirmation. It's quite the opposite. It's actually being very confident, moving in confidence, but the source of that confidence is not me. The source of that confidence comes out of those rhythms of pausing and walking and praying and being open and letting, those, letting myself engage with the Spirit and letting Him drive my movement and my decision-making. That's where that confidence comes from. Especially in allowing Him to move me in directions that I don't anticipate or directions that make me, discomf- that make me uncomfortable, that cause me discomfort when life seems to be throwing me out of balance because we have cultivated a trust that exceeds our comfort and it leads to a confidence that wherever it is that he is leading, we can still go there. The thing that I love about the rest of the story in Philippi that leads all the way up to leads all the way up to the, the earthquake that we described in, in the, in the thereafter, Okay? Paul, Paul receives this vision of a man from Macedonia. And you see from that point on, it, it, you know, Luke joins up, obviously, because it turns from they and he and stuff to we, okay? So Luke is actually joined in. So he's eyewitness to all of this. They go into the town of Philippi over in Macedonia. They have some success. They meet with Lydia, who is a... a she is a God-fearer, and she's a person of some standing. If, if, if you sell purple cloth, you're in the upper echelon of the market, okay? It's like, I don't know, it's like being the Vera Wang of Philippi or something. I don't know. She, she's, she has means, okay? The fact that she invites them all to stay at her house and use her homestead as a base of operations for, you know, the church in Philippi shows you that she is a person of considerable means, This looks like a big win, and we've got validation, and it's good. But, you know, like, Paul kind of stays even keel through the whole thing. And then they go out, and they're they're preaching, and they're they're praying, and they're doing these things, and they constantly are getting hounded by this this gal that we're talking about. And and you kind of see Paul keep his cool for a little while, and then finally he just goes, you know what? The God Most High can mean anything in Philippi. They don't know anything about Yahweh. It's a Roman town. Salvation could mean anything. Okay, it doesn't, this doesn't carry any of our theological freight with it. It could mean anything. It could mean 
these men are heralds of Zeus and they're going to teach you prosperity. Okay, like it could mean anything. And so he names it specifically and he says, you know what, actually I serve the risen Christ and out of his power I call you to come out. And he hits kind of these three big things that are all coming together. The social influence of Rome, the political influence of, uh, of Rome, the economic influence of exploitation of people and the exploitation of religion. It's all, it all kind of comes into a a big three-headed monster right here. And they end up getting thrown they end up getting beaten and thrown into prison. Here's something I always thought was interesting. Why doesn't Paul get more upset about that? He's a Roman citizen. Do you remember how many times in Acts he throws out that Roman citizen thing as a get out of jail free card? He does it all the time. Why doesn't he do it here? He does I mean he he does it later at the end, but he doesn't do it at the beginning. Why? It's almost like he's waiting for something. I'm going to go out on a limb here, okay? This is, this is complete and utter speculation, okay? I have zero proof for this, all right? So I'm just going to throw that out as a disclaimer right now. He stays in jail all night. They sing hymns after they've been beaten. The earthquake happens, they make sure all the prisoners stay put on purpose so that when the jailer gets there, Paul can tell him with confidence, it's going to be okay, your life is not forfeit because that's what happens if you're in charge of prisoners and they escape. They say, oh, okay, so they escaped your life for their life. And he does all this stuff that he doesn't have to do for this one guy. And I just wonder if the man that he sees in his vision when he is at Troas doesn't look a whole lot like that jailer. Let me think about that. How many times in your prayer life or something do you just get a flash of somebody? Somebody you know? Maybe somebody you don't know, but just the type of person, a type of person that you just think like, God, there's somebody that you've got me prepped to speak words of life to today. You've got me prepped to interact with somebody today, and I don't know who it is, but like, let me know when I see them. How do we know that as soon as Paul saw this guy who's dragging him off into prison, he goes, that's the guy! That's the guy! That's why we're here. That's why we're here. Would he have been able to do that had God not already cultivated his openness through these weeks and weeks and weeks of detours and here and there and traveling? And I don't know, if he hadn't been cultivated into that sense of openness, would he have been ready when the guy showed up? I don't know that he would have been. I mean, let's be real. I miss opportunities all the time. I'm sure I do. I'm sure we do. And the thing that God calls me to do is he says, be open to me. Be open to me. Let the rhythms of your life allow my spirit to open you up to what I'm doing.
hope you desire that openness. I know that I do, and, and, and really the only thing that I know to do is to pray for it. And so let's close out with some prayer together. Father, I don't know where we are this morning. Um, we, might, we might find ourselves in the, in the fallout of one of those blow-ups of self-confidence, Lord. Give us humility to seek you because you are merciful. You are the great healer. You are the one who redeems us. Lord, we may find ourselves wandering today, Lord, and in, in the direction that we thought we had is getting fuzzy or getting lost. And so, Lord, we come to you and we press into you. Help us to pause. Help us to listen to you. Help us, help us to look for where you are moving rather than just pushing blindly forward. God, for those of us that are being challenged today with a direction that seems to be way outside where we were planning to go, way outside of our comfort zone, something that really unbalances us, Lord, may we press into your spirit as well. Lord, convince us that our weaknesses or the areas where we feel like we need growth, that those are some of your best places to work that those are the places where you are able to go beyond our expectations and really, truly reveal your glory for your name's sake. And Father, I pray for those people, those people that we know that are coming to mind right now, those people that we don't know, but the, but the yearning in our hearts is there those people that we're going to cross paths with today or tomorrow or next week or next month or I don't know when. But those people that you have in mind, that you, you want us to see them and go, that's the guy, that's the girl, that's the one. Lord, give us an openness to where your spirit is directing us. Day in and day out. Help us, Father, as we, as we come to you, as we listen to you, as we walk with you, as we pray to you. Open our hearts up to what you see and what you're doing. And thank you for being the one who knows. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the one who sees when I don't see. The one who knows when I don't know. And the one who directs when my life just seems to be one detour after another. Thank you for being the faithful God. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And it is in his name that we lift all of these things.